This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Reverend Deborah Johnson. Reverend Deborah is the founder and president of Inner Light Ministries, an omni-faith spiritual community of more than 1,500 people in Northern California. Rev Deborah, or as her congregation often calls her, Rev D, I often call her Rev Deb, is a voice for compassion, equality, and reconciliation. Her primary focus has been on coalition building, conflict resolution, public policy development, and cultural sensitivity awareness. With Sounds True, Rev Deb has released two volumes of Letters from the Infinite. Volume one is called The Sacred Yes, and volume two is called Your Deepest Intent. She has also released a four CD audio program where she reads many of the letters of the sacred yes, called the sacred yes. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Deborah and I spoke about the process of receiving these letters from the infinite. We also talked about what she means by the term the sacred yes, and the turning point in her own life when she accepted this unconditional yes in her life. We also talked about how we can purify our intent and the role of sincerity in spiritual unfolding. And finally, Rev Deb gave us some ideas on how we ourselves can receive messages and writings and our own letters from the infinite. Here's my conversation with Reverend Deborah Johnson. Your books with Sounds True contain writings that you call Letters from the Infinite. And just to start, can you talk a little bit about this Letters from the Infinite? Does that mean these are channelings, or how do you understand it? This is material that comes to me in the form of a letter, and that includes full punctuation. Typically, I will record the information as I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it, and then transcribe it, and what you see in the book series are transcriptions. The voice that speaks to me speaks to me in a first-person voice and identifies itself as, quote, I, comma, the Mother, Father, God, living creator of all things, comma, when it is identifying itself. Um, But what I would say is that there is an intuitive voice within each and every one of us. I'm very linguistically order, um, oriented, so it's not surprising that my guidance would come to me in that format. Some people might be more in tune to music or have some more kinesthetic approach, but bottom line, there is something that is quote-unquote speaking to us always. You know, it's interesting. You know, my nickname for you is Rev Deb, so I'll just use that in our conversation if that's okay with you. It's it's in me. So when you talk about something like an intuitive voice or the sense of our ego getting out of the way when we create music or paint or make love, I think people feel in general comfortable with that. But suddenly when it's the voice of, and I'm not going to be able to repeat what you said, but the mother, father, God of all things speaking to I think then there's a response in many people of, I feel a little uncomfortable with that. I mean, God itself is talking through Rev Deb. What's going on here? Well, 
I, too, held such skepticism. Um, I grew up in a very fundamentalist, Pentecostal um, denomination, and I used to witness these things, and my attitude was pretty much, yeah, right. You know, that's pretty convenient that God happens to be backing up everything that you're saying. Um, And until I started to experience the process initially through someone else, um, the Reverend June Gatlin out of Los Angeles, in in 1988, and about seven years after that, I started hearing it for myself. And what I would generally say to people is, just read it. There is something that will probably resonate with you in your soul. And does it really matter where it comes from? When I think of sacred texts, when I think about the things that have survived the test of time, does it really make that much difference where it came from or from whom um, if it speaks to you in some sort of a meaningful way? The reason why I refer to it as letters from the infinite is that this is a little bit different in that the voice is speaking directly to us as humanity and points out our frailties and our strengths, where our faulty constructs are. In some respects, this is almost like allowing my therapist notes to get out because it will challenge me on what I'm thinking and the ways in which I've misperceived things. And there's just no way that I could have written this work about myself. I remember in my first conversation with you, and I don't know if you remember this or not, um, the book, The Sacred Guest, had been sitting on the desk of one of your associate editors. And you flipped through it. It it had been put out by a previous publisher or startup company. And, And I really keyed into the language that you used. You said that every author, every person who writes has a thumbprint. And when you read this, you couldn't find my thumbprint. You couldn't find a person's thumbprint on this. And whatever that is that makes it that pure in its vibration, I would say anybody that picks up any of these letters will get a sense of that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that comment, but that's okay. There's so many things I've said I can't remember. <laughs> but I am curious when a letter is emerging in you, so to speak, Mm -hmm. what does it feel like? What's going on inside your body? What's happening for you? Well, there are, I'd say, two or three different scenarios. One is it feels like a conversation somehow has been going on and I just tune into it midstream. So we could be having this conversation. I could be driving my car, washing the dishes, and all of a sudden I'll hear something like, and as for the idea of divine circulation that you were just speaking about yesterday, you know, on and on and on. It's like, okay, hello, all right. (laughs) We're obviously... uh, in the middle of a conversation here. And I will stop and, you know, do whatever I can to try to capture it. On the flip side, there will be those moments, particularly upon first awakening, where I just can't seem to wake up. I'm in this sort of fog, and it takes me a minute sometimes to realize, oh, that's what's going on. I'm not going to awaken until I do something with this message that's, that's coming through. And, and the third variety would be in the middle of something where, let's say it's a meeting, uh, could be a counseling session, uh, could be almost anywhere. And 
there will be a message that will come through that is very, very critical and relevant to whatever is going on in that moment. And I'm, I'm quite lucid. I'm awake. I'm looking around. I hear everybody. And in those situations, there's usually an opportunity for whoever is in the room to ask questions. And there is an exchange that occurs back and forth at that particular point in time. Do you ever, I imagine you would, have the feeling like, I could really use a letter from the infinite right about now, and then does it happen? Does it not happen? I'm getting better at that because I know that the information is always available, that if I'm not hearing it, it, it's me. It's not that a broadcast to stop. Um, I'm a little hesitant to put myself out there in the public at this point, as, say, an Esther Hicks does, where she just shows up and she knows that she can be, you know, in that space. Um, but I'm getting more and more to that point. And if I'm sincere in my searching, which I believe is what led me to being this open to hearing this in the first place, um, I will usually get some kind of feedback. Even if it's not in the form of a letter, there will be a quote-unquote sign or something that goes on that gives me some kind of a guidance. Now, you referred to Esther Hicks, so just to ask this question in a very direct way, would you say that what you're doing is channeling? These are channeled writings. You're channeling. Um... You know, I struggle with that term. I think in the eyes of the general public, they would probably say yes. The reason why I tend to not refer to it as that way is that my understanding of channeling is usually that the person who's channeling is channeling someone else. And in that moment, they are sort of absent for the most part. It's as though they are lending their consciousness, lending their body temple or whatever it is that they're bringing to bear here to someone else to speak through them. And it really isn't so much like that. You know, I, like I said, I'm very lucid, I'm very present, and I'm very much a part of the conversation in that there are references to me. There are times when, for example, there was a message that, <laughs> that came, and it was a small group of us, and it said that there are 12 of you in the room. And I kind of peeked, and I counted to see. And the next thing the voice said, why did you count? You know, I told you that there were 12. <laughs> and it, it, when I say it's like that, it's, it's very present, where in the moment when I'm thinking something, where the voice may say, you thought I was going to say this, but that's part of the problem. You know, your way of framing it in this way, that's, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say this other thing. So it isn't like someone else has taken me over. You know, I'm part of the mix. And in some respects, I'm a representative in these letters for humanity, and that's what the voice will say, is that, you know, you and humanity, or you with Western thought, or you who come from this particular background or that particular background, you know, how it is that, that you frame things. And the letters are always clearing out our consciousness and getting us back on track. They are sometimes very um, firm and, what I would say, stern, but never in a condemning or judgmental way. Always in a loving, compassionate way that's calling us back to our higher selves. You know, Rev Deb, what I'm finding myself feeling is, you know, I want to get into the actual content of the mm -hmm. messages that you've received in Letters from the Infinite, because as you've mentioned, there's so much helpful and useful teachings. 
And yet I wonder still, and I, I kind of can't get off of this, but I will soon, don't worry, that mm-hmm. part of the reason perhaps that these books that Sounds True has published with you haven't gotten more attention? Because that's one of the questions I've asked is, why haven't these books gotten more attention? The content is so useful and so good, is that there's just something in people that recoils or can't quite become comfortable with the idea that, quote unquote, God is speaking. It's okay if it's your higher knowing and you're doing automatic writing. And if you just, you know, wrote the books with your own sort of just, you know, Deborah Lynn Johnson wrote these books. I went into a an interesting kind of relaxed state and these words came out, but it's calling it God that creates an obstacle for people. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Um, I think for some, that's probably the case. And what I would say to that is that so much, to me, an indication of the depth of intimacy that people feel with the divine, that when people feel within their own selves that they have this deep, profound intimacy not only do they get over it, but they're so appreciative because they can feel the voice speaking directly to them. And for individuals who are skeptical about just the whole idea of a divine or a process, it might be a little bit more challenging. Um, But what I can say, you know, once again, is that even the biggest skeptic and I've certainly come up against them, that if they will take the time and read, even just a portion, most people don't read it cover to cover, you know, either volume, The Sacred Yes or Your Deepest Intent. They'll just flip it open. And usually whatever it is that comes up in that moment is exactly what they need. The letters range from things about our own individual journeys, our interpersonal relationships, our global governmental affairs. It deals with society as a whole, as well as the things that are going on in our own individual life. The three letters between the two volumes on marriage in particular, I think, are just exquisite, given all of the debates that are going on right now about you know marriage equality. Um. And, you know, I dare say that I think it's been more my inability to have enough public exposure than I think it is rejection of the material. Mm -hmm. Because once exposed, once people hear of it, and I do quite a number of webinars or um, opportunities where people can hear parts of the letters being quoted, they're right there. Mm-hmm. Very, It is a very rare occasion where somebody that actually hears it, to my experience, actually hears it, rejects it. Well, let's get right into it. I think a good place to start would be with the title of each of the volumes and the teachings that underlie the title. So let's start with the sacred yes. What is this idea behind the yes that makes it a sacred yes? What are you talking about? Well, the sacred yes is a place of... May I quote? Please. Okay. This is part of a prologue to the book. And it, from the letter, begin with yes. It's just a paragraph. It says, This is the yes that whispers in your soul. This is the yes that sings to you in the midnight hour. This is the yes that cradles you when you are trembling in fear. This is the yes that opens its arms and embraces you when you are feeling disconnected from everything and everybody, including yourself. This is the yes that sustains you when you don't know where you're going to get the strength to take the next step. 
let alone finish the journey. This is the yes that you were looking for in all of your conversations with everybody else. I am the yes. You turn to other people for these things and then get disappointed when it was never theirs to give. Seek and ye shall find, yes. But you have to look where it can be found to find it. Come to me. You will find it in me. Yes. In our society, we tend to make yes a concurrence. It's an agreement to something on the back end. And we want to know what it is that we're giving our consent to before we, in fact, say yes. Mm -hmm. This sacred yes is on the front end as it describes it in that particular letter, that it's the foundation stone upon which everything is built. It is the lens. It is the framework. It's in the beginning. It's not on the back. And this yes is a place of full, wholehearted consent to life, to divine order, to the great mystery of life and your being significant player in the great unfoldment of life. You are a journey. You're on a journey and you're a spiritual traveler. And the sacred yes is deep, profound within you. It's not about the circumstances. It's not about the uh, conditions. It's about your sense of connection with the divine. And when you have that, it sustains you. No matter what's going on, you are uplifted, you are inspired, and you manage to get rejuvenated, even in the midst of things not being the way you would want them to be. I'm curious, do you have the experience for yourself that having this sacred yes in you again and again and again, that it now just happens naturally all the time, or do you ever find yourself in the no position towards life? I know deep within my soul that it's a friendly universe. And I trust that down in the depths of my soul. Do I get into a pity party sometimes? Sometimes I forget my spiritual identity. Sometimes I get in the mud just like with everybody else and wallow in the, you know, woe is me victim, look at what everything that's happened to me. But the more that I live in the sacred yes, the less tolerance I have to stay in that position for too long. Because it loses its appeal. I can't muster up enough to make me really believe it. Mm-hmm. I, so there's a self-correcting measure that happens, uh, a, a, an habituation, once you start to live at that place of the sacred, yes. You know, when you say that, that you feel and know deep in your soul the goodness of the universe, the goodness of divinity, you know, that's such a powerful thing for me to hear. And sometimes I wonder... How could you help somebody who maybe doesn't know that in their soul, who maybe feels the world is more neutral? Like they're not convinced it's bad, but they're certainly not convinced it's good either. They sort of have this viewpoint of maybe it's neither. Well, I first off try to make a distinction between the world and the universe. Mm-hmm. The world being the material world. Yeah, sure. But let's say we're talking about the universe here. So we're talking yeah, about this, you know, made up. So like that, that world may not be all that friendly. Um, the place where I usually start is with nature, and this notion that there are 
competing energy forces or that there's a force for bad or that there's a force for evil, that we really cannot find anything in nature that we would consider to be evil without it coming out of human consciousness. The only time that you ever find anything that is deliberately desecrating in any kind of way, it's when human beings have lost touch with their spiritual identity. And that there's no power out there that wants deliberately to hurt you or harm you. That's one. Two, when we look at nature, we see that it moves towards life and more life. That even a little blade of grass if you put cement on top of it, if it's just the smallest crack, it's going to keep coming through. That there's something that's rejuvenating and self-sustaining that happens in nature. That's You have a fire in the redwoods or a fire in the forest, and what do you know? There's new growth that's going to happen the next year. And that we're part of this sort of natural ecology that there's nothing out there that wants ill of us, but that we are places and spaces in the universe. That life happens through, just not to. That there's always the capacity for more, for more joy, for more song, for more dance, for more creativity. That just simply awaits our consent. But there's nothing withholding anything from us. It's just, can we step up and say yes, and why not me? Mm-hmm. And would you say there was a turning point in your life where you were able to say and recognize the sacred yes in a different kind of way than previously, sort of like before the sacred yes and after the sacred yes? Um, yes. As I mentioned before, I grew up in a very... No, that's not exactly true. My mother (laughs) is a very devout, evangelical, fundamentalist, uh, charismatic Pentecostal. My father is a little more metaphysical in his orientation. They've been married 65 years. Um, So I grew up in a household where there were these different sort of theological perspectives. But since my mother had control over our, my religious upbringing, I grew up in the holiness, hell, fire, brimstone kind of church. Now, for as long as I can remember, I've been aware of the fact that I was gay, which was a bit problematic growing up in a hell and brimstone kind of church. Yeah, I can imagine. So there was a voice within me that told me that I was okay. But I wasn't exactly receiving any of these affirming messages. And I can remember distinctly, I was about 15 or 16 years old. I had a girlfriend at the time. We were together all through high school and college. We're still friends now. Um, And I can remember making that decision that if there was a hell then I was just going to have to go. Because if, if, if I were to try to be anything else other than what I was, I would already be in hell here. So why be in hell here and there <laughs> if I'm going to have any chance at life? It's to live life fully here now. And there was a moment when I had this peak awareness that there really wasn't a devil, that there really wasn't a devil, that there really wasn't a hell for all eternity. And when my mind was released of that construct of control, there was a phenomenal new liberation there were two things that happened subsequent to that that sealed it for me. 
One was a book by Reverend Troy Perry, who was from a background very similar to mine, who had been defrocked from the Pentecostal church for coming out gay. And the title of his first piece, colleague of mine <laughs> now, the title of his first book was The Lord is My Shepherd and He Knows I'm Gay. <laughs> he started the Metropolitan Community Churches, which was the first quote-unquote gay denomination. And then about the same time, the play for colored girls only, who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, was also out. And there was a line towards the end of that. Um, the play is just exquisite. does not bear any resemblance to this movie that recently came out. But the play is just exquisite. And there was a line at the end of the play when the women are coming together and um, they said there has to be a laying on of hands, that we need to heal each other. And, the, <clears throat> and one person said, I found God in in myself and I loved her fiercely damn it was over no devil the Lord is my shepherd and he knows I'm gay I found God in myself and loved her fiercely oh Tammy it was over Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was just between those two things there was this great awakening in me, which allowed me to stop cowering in fear about what was going to happen to me if I didn't obey all of these tenets, and to start saying, what is my real purpose and meaning in life? You know, reveal it to me. And it really is that kind of search that that led to the letters. Mm -hmm. My attitude has been, I don't want to believe what everybody else has said about me. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. if there's a God anywhere, and if there's a plan for my life, and if I'm abomination, i got to hear that from you. Mm-hmm. Because that's not what I feel. And if there's value and meaning in my life, tell me. Don't have my life be somebody else's interpretation mm-hmm. of who or what I should be. Talk to me. Mm -hmm. And I think I have perhaps wanted that more than the average bear Mm -hmm. to really, really hear it. Now, this idea of this, I'll use the word unconditional yes in us, this deep, what you call sacred yes, What would you say to somebody who's suffering from an illness of some kind and is finding it hard to find the sacred yes in that experience? What I would say is that the help that they seek is within the very body that appears to be ill. And this is true for everything. That the health can't be bought can't be borrowed. The doctors don't have it. But that your body temple, that every cell and tissue and fiber of your body is infused with a wisdom and an intelligence. I love the way that Lynn McTaggart puts it, um, author of The Field. Um, And a lot of these movies and books like The Living Matrix and whatnot that it describe us as energy fields. And the way that she says the disease is just scrambled information. It's just scrambled information. It's a way in which signals and wires, so to speak, have gotten crossed. But they, we can uncross them, so to speak. That there is a perfect pattern of health that's still within us. And it's really important that we don't let the outer expression now have the last word because our body temples, our cells, are constantly rejuvenating. That the body that you have now is not the body you had two months ago. That at any moment in time, in this process of the rejuvenation, there is 
the opportunity to get back on track. And that it is extremely important that we bless, that we nurture, that we love our bodies unconditionally. Because the thing that appears to be most out of alignment, whether it's in your body temple or in our body politic, that's what needs our love the most. Mm. Beautiful. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, Rev Deb, let's move on to the title of the second volume in the series of Letters from the Infinite, Your Deepest Intent. Tell me a little bit about that phrase, what you mean by that. Well, your intent is a place of integration. A lot of times people think of intent as a goal, but it's not a goal. It is a place where um, it all comes together our thinking, our emotions, our actions, our words, our deeds, where it all comes into alignment and starts moving in a certain direction. Um, Your intent is a vibratory field. It's not just a goal, but it, it is a... Um, convergence of your entire energy field. And what happens for most of us is that we are at cross purposes. As human beings, we have a tremendous capacity to be able to think one thing, feel another thing, say something else, yet do something else. And it's that fragmented approach to being in life which diffuses our energy and prevents us from being able to really fulfill where it is that we want to go. It's as though we have our foot on the gas and a foot on the brake at the same time. But this place of intent is where it all pulls together. And it is far more important that our intent be pure than our goals to be actualized. Because when you come from the place of a pure intent, then there is something in the universe that is responding to us and opening up doors. And through laws of attraction and all the other things that we hear about, that's making opportunities happen for us. Mm -hmm. How do you suggest somebody purify their intent? Um, Our intent takes many things into consideration, not just what you want to do, but why do you want to do it? Why do you think it's necessary that it be done? What is it that you're hoping is going to accomplish on the back end? Who do you plan on involving and including in this? There are these basic kinds of questions, and when the answer to any of these questions is something that is defensive, um, self-serving, coming from a place of fear or lack or limitation, then there's some purification that needs to happen. So let's say, for example, if I'm going out in the marketplace and I'm looking for a job, if I'm looking for a job out of fear, fear of a lack of money, fear of losing my house, you know, fear of all these kinds of things, then that's a very different vibration that I'm sending out than if I'm looking for a job saying, 
I want to give myself fully. I have skills. I have talents. I want to be a productive and creative and in a right environment where I can make a difference. Now, it may be a factual situation. The other things, perhaps I really am in deep financial need. Perhaps I am close to losing my house. But if the place that I'm coming from and looking for the job is from that place of desperation, that energy goes out before I do. If I'm coming from that place of, gee, I really want to make this contribution, then the good that I seek is seeking me. I'm far more likely to attract individuals or to become aware of situations where I really can, in fact, accomplish that. Mm-hmm. Recently, I've met a couple of different people who have said something like this to me. I'd like to share with you my personal mission statement. And I think, like, okay, that's interesting. And they go ahead and they tell me their personal mission statement. And, you know, some part of me while I'm listening is thinking, God, you know, this whole thing feels a little too uh, concrete or something. Like, you know, they're, they're walking around with something they've written and put in their pocket. And, well, I'm just curious what you think about that. Well, personally, I agree. Um, and this is where there often is a, a convolution that happens sometimes between what I would call some real basic spiritual principles and the human self-help movement, where we will be using some of the same language but meaning completely different things. Yeah. Um, the purpose for a goal or doing your mission statement, any of that stuff, as far as I'm concerned, is merely for the purpose of getting you in motion, merely for the purpose of opening you up to greater possibilities. It's not about manifesting just that particular thing, because whatever it is that you've come up with in your mind, it's too small. Whatever you've come up with in your mind, there's always something that's bigger, greater, grander, smaller, cheaper, easier than what you had in mind. And sometimes we limit the great is with our plans because we're too specific about what we think it's supposed to be or where it's supposed to come from. And then we're missing all of these other blessings that are there awaiting us. If, if I can share with you a simple little story sure. that made this so concrete for me, that healed me of this. <laughs> Years ago when I lived in Los Angeles, I lived in an area that was very densely populated. It's called the Miracle Mile off of close to Wilshire Boulevard. And didn't have enough parking space there, and I would have to park on these different streets and get up in the rain and before 7 o'clock and move my car and all this. And I was just early into taking science of mind, religious science classes at the time. And, and I was told that everything was energy and that we should bless things with the same energy that we use to condemn. So I'm walking around pissed. Thank you, God, for my two parking spaces. Thank you, God, for my two parking spaces. Thank you, God, for my two parking spaces. This must have gone on like a year or so. Well, then I buy my first piece of property. It's a condo in the Silver Lake area. And you know what I got? Two parking spaces. That's it. Not a garage, not an overhang, not shade, not visitor's parking. <laughs> I got two parking spaces. It, it was at that moment when I realized, wow, you know, this stuff really does work. You really can, quote, unquote, manifest whatever it is that you put your mind to. And, and because I was so narrow and so specific, I cut myself off. So now, instead of worrying so much about what it looks like, now I affirm the absolute quality. I affirm the absolute essence without having to put markers on it. It's like the 
job situation that I was just talking about, where I was describing it as qualities that I'd like to be someplace where it's you know open and fun, and I can be rewarded and well compensated, and um, you know work with people of like mind without saying specifically, I want to be in this industry, in this job, in this town, on this street, making this amount of money with this company. And I, yeah, you can get that. You, you can. But that may not be your highest and best. There may be something else out there for you um, that you haven't even thought of. Mm-hmm. Keep yourself open mm-hmm. to the possibilities. I want to circle back to something that you briefly touched on that came up in the letters, which is what you've received related to marriage. Interesting letters specifically on that topic and how it might relate to questions of gay marriage today. And I'm curious for you to comment on that. Well, it relates directly. Um, There are two letters on marriage that are in the first volume, The Sacred Yes, and then there's one that's in Your Deepest Intent. The reason why they relate so directly is that it makes it very specific about what a marriage is really about and how it really isn't so much about the parties who are involved, but what it is that you're doing in the marriage that makes it a marriage. And it talks about marriage as a commitment um, and what it is that it's asking for. And it says it, you know, really explicitly. You know, I don't really care that much about who you marry. Um, I care about the quality. And if these certain aspects and things aren't in the relationship, well, then it really isn't, you know, a, a real marriage. You, you don't dress up servitude, you know, by calling it a marriage if it really isn't about equality you know, or justice. And it, they're just so wonderful. Well, I pulled one quote out that I really liked, and I'll throw this Mm -hmm. out and you can comment on it. Our marriage to each other mirrors our marriage to divinity. Yes. I thought that was beautiful. Tell me what that means to you. Well, what it explains is that Relationships are like a laboratory, and that we learn with each other how to love. And the letters are suggesting that we use our relationships with each other as an opportunity to express our sense of connectedness with the divine. Most spiritual traditions, for example, when they tell you to be of service to humankind, that when you are being of service to humankind, you're not just helping people, but you are also sort of glorifying and magnifying the divine presence, you know, whatever that is, that that, that when we do something unto each other, we've done it unto life itself. And that we have an opportunity in our relationships to be able to learn how to forgive, how to love unconditionally, how to um, be of service to one another, you know, how to care, how to show up, how to really be in a commitment. It's saying that if you were running and hiding from each other and, you know, mistreating each other, that you can't really be present for God. And that part of the way that you can gain spiritual availability is cleaning up how you do your relationships. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to throw you this other line from the letters that I really liked, just to bring it out and have you comment on it. It was from the Sacred Yes, and here's the quote. Courage is the ability to keep walking in the direction of your surrender. That 
is one of my all-time favorite lines. There are many, many notable quotables, but that's one of my my all-time favorites. Yes. Courage is the ability to keep walking in the direction of your surrender. Surrender in the spiritual sense does not mean defeat. Surrender is a yielding, as if you were merging onto the freeway or the highway or something, where you just slow down a little bit and you let something else go in front of you or go ahead of you. And the letters point out often that you don't have to know where you're going to know that you're headed in the right direction. And this place of surrender is a yielding to a sense of a divine order, of a right action. Um, the serenity prayer, for example, sort of speaks of that, that you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I can't change, the courage to change the things I can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that this courage is not so much about might and power, that what takes real courage is to be able is the ability to be able to yield. That's the real courage, to trust. To trust in powers and presences and energies and wisdom and logic that is greater than our little brain can always wrap its arms around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I would say about these letters that I think is very unique is that most of the time when we speak, when we speak of spiritual guidance, it's on a very personal, individualistic level where these letters, like the marriage letter, they are speaking to us as a society as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, I dedicate your deepest intent to the United States of America because there are so many letters in there um, at the macro level that are speaking to us as a society about what is our deep intent in the world. Mm-hmm. We have all this might. We have all this power. You know, what really are we doing with it? Um, you know, we say we want democracy. We say we want equality. But is that really what we're doing? Um, and it's another reason why I think that the people who read these letters really appreciate them so much is because they're practical application is so broad, whether it's talking about it from economics or politics, conflict resolution, um, you know, right down to cultivating your own personal relationship with the divine. It goes from the micro to the macro and back and forth. And this last point that I really want to bring forward dovetails exactly with what you're saying about creating one's own relationship with the divine, which is, I'm curious for somebody who's listening and says, you know, I'm intrigued and would like to read these letters from the infinite, but equally, I want to write my own letters from the infinite. I'm inspired here about the idea of finding this spiritual authority and spiritual voice inside me. What would you suggest to such a person who wants to open to receive that kind of knowing and writing? Um, be still, listen, give yourself an opportunity to get away from the maddening noises, even if it's just a quiet walk in the park, um, turn off the cell phones and the computers and all of the rest of that, and, and, and let yourself really tune in within. There are many different kinds of exercises or things that people can do. Uh, but I find one of the quickest ones, if you want to get into this particular mindset, um, is what I call the internal dialogue. And with the internal dialogue, you are essentially creating a script between your quote-unquote higher self and the part of you that's 
in there wallowing and having the pity party. And if you were to just take a piece of paper and just literally write a script where you let that lower vibrational part of you start off with all the complaints, whatever it is. Um, you know, life sucks and I'm, I'm never going to get anywhere. You know, everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. Guess I'll eat some worms, you know, and just see what the response back is. To see what the, just, just listen for what the response back is. And if you would just do that process enough, you will find that there is something that's calling you up to a higher place, that there's some kind of wisdom, vibration that you're tapped into that is not stuck and trapped in the story. And if we give ourselves a chance to let it speak to us, it will not fail you. You'll begin to hear. You said something interesting in our conversation earlier, Rev Deb. You said that you thought it was your sincerity, I think is the word that you used, that really opened up this flow, if you will. Say what you mean by that sincerity. What were you so sincere about? I was sincere in the sense of a seeker with a deep longing, but not the kind of longing that is an unrequited love, because sometimes if you long too much, you will convince yourself that you don't have it. But I really believed that it was possible and part of that sincerity is tied it with the love. See, I, George Washington Carver, I think, said it best when he said, whatever you love enough reveals its secrets to you. And I find most people don't really love life. They're kind of afraid of life. And they're trying to hedge against it. They're sort of suspicious of it a little bit that they don't really love God or the divine. They don't really love it. You know, once again, they're afraid of it. They're confused about it. They're angry with it or frustrated with it. Um, but if you really love anything, if you really love mathematics, it will reveal its secrets to you. If you really love dogs, they'll reveal their secrets to you or flowers. Uh, and, and if you come from, that's what I mean by sincere, a place of real openness, real wanting to know, not so much, God, prove yourself to me on my standards and how I, I want it to be. Like the letters will tell me often that I don't keep anything from you, that you can know anything if you're willing to see through my eyes. If you're willing to see through my eyes. So that sincerity, part of it is laying aside how I think it should be or ought to be, and opening up wide to what is it? And most of us can't get the answer sometimes because we're asking all the wrong questions. We're, we're asking questions like, you know, what's wrong here? Um, when is this going to be over? And saying, no, those aren't the questions. Because there aren't any answers to those. <laughs> it keeps you like moving the same tinker toys around. But if we can broaden it and take the judgment off of life, just really show up with the deep love and appreciation for the mystery of life itself, we will find that the so-called secrets aren't that secret at all. Love is just the decoder. Our sincerity is just the decoder that allows us to see what otherwise we've been blind to. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Reverend Deborah Lynn Johnson, as I like to call her, Rev Deb. Many people call her Rev D. And Rev D 
is the author of a series of Letters from the Infinite, Volume 1, The Sacred Yes, and Volume 2 is called Your Deepest Intent. She's also created with Sounds True a four-CD audio program where she reads many of the letters from The Sacred Yes. Rev Deb, thanks for being with us here on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. It's great to talk Certainly to you. enjoyed our talk. Soundstreet.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.